0: Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. This week, we're going to look at the third epiphany. Third epiphany. Now, again, we said last week that epiphany is on January the 6th, and the epiphany celebrates the message of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And the great scripture there, of course, is Matthew chapter 2 concerning the Magi. The first Sunday after the Epiphany is the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River, and he begins his ministry by being sent out in the desert by the Holy Spirit to take on the devil 40 days and 40 nights. Then he begins his ministry in Galilee, begins preaching and sharing the gospel. And we pray, of course, that we would hear that message of the gospel, Last week, we looked at the second epiphany, the second Sunday after the epiphany, and this week, the third Sunday after the epiphany. We are in the books of Genesis, Hebrews, and John, and we continue our study of those three books. Now, you'll want to see, if you can, how they merge together. As I said last week, how the beginning in Genesis, the call of God to Abram. And we'll see more of Abram in this week's readings and how God is preparing his people. It's a long process. Abram, Abraham's about 1800 BC. So 1800 years before Jesus comes. Then we go to Hebrews and we deal with the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the offerings, the Levitical system, the law in that wonderful book of Hebrews. And how Jesus is the greatest of them all. Greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Isaac, greater than Jacob, greater than David, greater even than King David. And Hebrews gives us this wonderful theology about Christ and about what what God is accomplishing in Christ. Finally, we spend our time in the Gospel of John where we follow Jesus from John's perspective. And we'll be doing that from chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. Remember, we talked about the Samaritan woman at the beginning of chapter 4, and then we go to chapter 5, and we begin with chapter 6, that very long chapter on the bread of life in chapter 6. We'll look at a few of those verses in the first half of that letter. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 13. Now, chapter 13 talks about the Abram and Lot separating. Now, the reason that's going to be important is you're going to have the whole Sodom and Gomorrah theme. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, verse 12, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and were sitting greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever they still have that land today. It's called Israel. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. Now, why did he have to give him the land? Because if they don't have land, they can't be a people. It would be very hard to be a people from which the Messiah is going to come from that stock. And so God goes through this very long process of giving what the Israelites eventually need in order for the Messiah, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, how that can be arranged, how that can happen. So God Almighty is orchestrating these events, purposing these events, and using all these wonderful people to um, make these events happen and so we begin with abram in chapter 14 and 15 and 16 abram is rescuing lot again a beautiful message verse 18 melchizedek king of salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of the most high god remember we read that last week in uh hebrews he blessed abram blessed be abram by god most high creator of heaven and earth and blessed be god most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We read that last week. It's in chapter 14. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. God's covenant with Abram in chapter 15. He makes a covenant with him. Now remember, we have the Noahic covenant. Noah, the Covenant with Noah. Remember that one? I'm not going to destroy the people again. I'm not going to send another flood. There'll be a rainbow in the sky. The word of the Lord came to him in verse 4. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. Look at the heavens and count the stars. So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans and to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Abram said, I'm so used to saying Abraham, but it's Abram. O oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And then there's a sacrifice that we see there. A heifer, a goat, and a ram each three days, years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. The Lord put him in a deep sleep. The Lord said, know for certain that your descendants, this is chapter 15, uh, verses 13, verse 13, that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So he's prophesying what the future is going to be. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. This is going to be Egypt. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and get buried in a good old age. So on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He makes a covenant with him because he knows that we are going to have a problem keeping it. So we need to know that he's going to keep his side of the covenant. God is going to be faithful to us. And that's very, very important. In chapter 16, we have a very important chapter in the Bible. Sarah, Abram's wife, had no children. So, Abram did what any probably person would do. No children, I need children, God may be a promise. I'm going to take my Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. The Lord kept me from having children, he says. Go sleep with your, my maidservant, Sarah says to Abram. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, God told Abram he was going to take care of this, but Abram didn't see a whole lot of results, so he went and took care of it himself. She got pregnant, and that caused a tremendous amount of problems. His name is Ishmael, chapter chapter 16, verse 11. And we'll see what happens in just a minute. In chapter 17, we have the covenant of circumcision. I'm God Almighty, verse 2, verse 1 and 2. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. So there's where he changes his name. I will make you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. So God is going to do something with this man, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, even though he disobeyed him by having a relationship with Hagar and had a son named Ishmael. God is going to keep his covenant with Abram. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants. Verse 7 of 17, after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to take care of you. Now, this is my covenant with you and your descendants, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. The generations to come, every male among you who eight days old, must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off. He has broken my covenant. So this this was a very serious practice. Circumcision of the flesh involving pain, suffering, but it is a sign that God has made with them. As for Sarah, her name is going to be Sarah, name is changed. I will bless her and give you a son. And they laughed at him. Abraham felt face down. He laughed. How can she bear a child? She's 90. I'm 100. And you're going to have a child, God says, and you're going to name him Isaac. So the 17th chapter is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, where we have the establishment of the covenant. We have the child that Sarah is going to be born, it's going to give, uh, going to conceive and give birth to Isaac, 90 years old, he's 100. How is this going to happen? God's going to make it happen. And in chapter 18, we have the visitors that come near Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance in the tent. There were three men standing by, bowing to the ground, and Abram, has this encounter with these folks. And in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year and your Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah was in, was uh, listening at the entrance to the tent. She laughs also, by the way. She's laughing. After I'm worn out and my master's old, will I now have his this pleasure? Is anything too hard for the Lord, he says. Sarah was afraid. And God Almighty, as we'll see next time, will give them a son. So uh, one more time, we thank God that he's in charge. We look at Hebrews chapter 8. We left off with chapter 7 last week. The high priest of a new covenant. Again, because of the sake of time, this information is somewhat difficult because there's so much you'd have to explain in terms of what the new covenant is, although we just found out about that. Uh, in terms of what a covenant is with Noah uh, and with um, Abram and who is now Abraham in Genesis chapter eight, verse six, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as a covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. So the covenant that God made is a good covenant, but with Jesus as the mediator and Jesus being the one that sacrificed himself and Jesus being the one that is more perfect, the promises of God are much better in Christ. In chapter 9, we have this extraordinary chapter about the blood of Jesus. Verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. Jesus' death of himself on the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood was, greater, was the greatest sacrifice of all. Remember, annually, the high priest would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Yom Kippur, you've probably heard of that, Yom Kippur. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, verse 13 of chapter 9, sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so we may serve the living God? So that great ninth chapter is about the value of the blood of Christ and his death. In chapter 10, we continue this idea of sacrifice. We continue the idea of quoting scriptures from the Old Testament to better comprehend how great a value Christ is how valuable Christ is. Verse 10 of chapter 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So our righteousness, our holiness, our being cleansed, our being saved, our being purified by his blood, all takes place because of the value of his eternal priesthood. Let us draw near, verse 22, to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us consider how we may spur one another, verse 24, toward love and good deeds. Oh, just tremendous responses to the sacrifice of Jesus and what he means for us in his death and resurrection. It is a dreadful thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. Take him seriously, folks. Take him seriously. My righteous one, verse 38, will live by faith. So the writer to the Hebrews is taking us through in these chapters 8, 9, 10, the value of Christ, what he has done for us, tying that back to the Old Testament, tying that back to the scriptures of the Old Testament, showing how that was once prophesied and said, now it was fulfilled in Christ, and the writer of the Hebrews is now explaining what God said before and what he actually did in space and time in in the present through the Gospels, and in the writing after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, Jesus's, we we are now getting an explanation of how it all fits together. It's very, very profound, very deep, and I hope you will enjoy that reading. Now back to the present, Uh, if it were, when we talk about Jesus's life in chapter 4. Remember we spoke about the uh, Samaritan woman, and many Samaritans believed that he really is the savior of the world in verse 4. 42. Now we're going to see another miracle and hear of another miracle in the healing of the official son. And so John does not have the kind of healings, the multitude of healings that Matthew, Mark and Luke have, which we call the synoptic gospels. But every now and again, he's going to give us a healing that's going to give us a very important message. And in the in the healing of this official son, we see the miracle working power of Jesus, that Jesus can do amazingly, amazingly miraculous things. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us since we believe he is divine. Human, the incarnation, 100% human, 100% divine. Chapter five, the healing at the pool, another healing. But this time, this person's not very supportive and not, not a whole lot of belief. And so enjoy that reading. Now, Jesus is going to spend time in the Gospel of John with the leaders, and he's going to give us a fairly long dialogue between the leaders in several of these chapters, thinking of chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight. We see it in chapter um, nine, where Jesus is going to... uh, have a dialogue, have a relationship with them in the sense that he's sharing his truth with them and they're countering him, asking him questions. Now, what I love about chapter five is of several lines that I want to share with you. And again, this is just pure gold. The father judges no one, verse 22, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus talking, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. And he has given him authority, verse 27, to judge because he is the son of man. By myself, verse 30, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. So, What John is going to do is share the words of Jesus for us, and of course for them at that time in the first century, about his relationship with the Father and the kind of authority and power and influence he has. So what you see in John are these incredible dialogues, and we see miracles, and they're specifically chosen by John as signs of who Jesus is. So in John, we see Jesus doing something, and we see Jesus saying something, and you want to... You want to merge those two things so that you have this beautiful picture of this divine man who is incarnate Christmas Day from the flesh, preexistent. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, the prologue. And now we see him manifesting himself, doing ministry in this epiphany season, right? Epiphanos appearing. And we see how his words have tremendous power and action. Chapter six, we see the feeding of the 5000, which, by the way, is the only miracle in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And of course, he's showing them, as we'll see later in that. uh, We'll see it next week. We'll see that Jesus is the bread of life. So physically he's feeding them. But like the Samaritan woman, he's just not offering water. He's offering himself. Rivers of living water. And he'll say in. um, He'll say later on in John about thirsting, about coming to him and about eating and about feeding, coming to him and listening to him. He walks on water, so he has power over nature. We see the walking on water in verses uh, chapter 6, verse 16 through 24. A man that can walk on water a man that can feed a significant number of people with five loaves and two fish, a man that can say things that no one's ever said before. Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, verse 26, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw my miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And I leave you with verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Remember I talked about that last week? My food is to do the will of God, carry out his work. He's saying it again. Do not work for food that spoils. Don't worry about eating. But the food that endures to eternal life, that has eternal value. So in Genesis and Hebrews and in John, we have the juxtaposition of these three scriptures as we go through Epiphany together. And we learn about more about who Christ is, who God is, what covenants he's made with us, and what he's done for us. Enjoy the scriptures this week. May God bless you abundantly.